welcome to the Redeemer Students Podcast. My name is JT Stead and I'm your host. I'm also the student and outreach pastor here at Redeemer Church. And our student ministries exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Our whole goal is to come alongside parents and helping their kids follow Jesus Christ. And so what you're about to listen to is a sermon that was preached on our Wednesday night gathering from 6.30 to 8.30. And as you listen, I pray that you are encouraged and that you would be conformed more and more to the image of Jesus Christ as we behold Him in His glory. So thank you for tuning in and enjoy. Well, we're going to be in Ephesians 2, 11 through 13, so you guys can go there in your Bibles, and we'll be continuing in our series through Ephesians. I am Daniel Eckberg, as you already said, and I'm excited to preach tonight. And so, I just want to start off with a couple questions. As we get into this passage about where we once were and where God's brought us now, it talks a lot about how our former condition, we were without hope, without God in the world. And so my question is, what is it that makes life so difficult, often dull, bitter, painful, and hopeless? Why is it that so many people are depressed and want to die and yet withhold themselves from death because they are afraid of what comes after it? What makes all the suffering of this life seem so unbearable? And why is the world full of such misery? Why are so many people living like beasts, dominated by an insatiable desire to gratify their carnal passions with food and sex and money and work and all the pleasures of the senses? Why does it seem like people are always seeking but never satisfied, always looking but never finding? Why do so many people feel empty and try to drown their sorrows in passing pleasures or hide their fears with with jokes and self-deceit? What is humanity's biggest problem? And the Bible answers this question. It says that we sinned. We were created upright, righteous in God's presence, but we sinned and we were exiled from his presence, like Parker said earlier. And the biggest problem is that we have been cut off from God. It's our sin that separates us from God. Sin is when we forsake God as our proper end, the one whom we're supposed to seek, Instead, we make an end of ourselves. We make ourselves the goal of our life. We love created things rather than the creator. And we love the gifts of God more than the giver. Our problem is sin. Our problem is idolatry, making, loving something more than God. And we need to think about that problem, think about how it can be saved from it. And that's what this passage is about. Augustine said that you have made us for yourself, O God, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. You have made us for yourself, O God, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. The main point is that we need God. We were separated from him, but we were made to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So how can we be brought back into his presence? How can we be reconciled to God? How can all the broken relationships in this world be reconciled, brought together? How can we have hope? The main point of this message is that we were all formerly estranged from God and his people without hope. But it is by the blood of Jesus Christ that we are brought near to God and may in this life enjoy fellowship with him amidst all the sufferings. 
and along with the hope of eternal life forever with God in heaven. So, let's go. If you're there, Ephesians 2, 11 through 13, I will read it, and then we'll get into the sermon. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, without hope, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to speak. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. We ask for his help. Tell me to communicate. Help us all to hear your word, to rejoice in what you've done for us, and to believe. The Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the next. And this comes all from the Lord, who is the Spirit. It is the Spirit who has been given to us so we might know the things freely given to us by God. So come come and help us all to realize these truths by your grace and for your glory. Amen. Okay, so I'm just going to walk through this text and bring out its truths. It'd be like we're scuba diving for precious jewels. So we're going to jump in and maybe it'll get hard, but we'll, we'll find the treasure, bring it back up, and then we'll look at it and we'll think about what it means for us. We're just going to keep doing that. So just track with me. So I'm just going to start in verse 11. The main point I want to bring out is the hostility between man and man that existed between, that existed before we were saved. By hostility, I refer to the broken relationships between people based on superficial distinctions. So how do you, where is that in verse 11? It says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called which is really saying the so-called uncircumcision by what is the so-called circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. He's talking about how the Gentiles, the Ephesians, were basically spoken of in derogatory terms. You're the uncircumcision. You will not be accepted by God. He will not bring you into his presence. You're less than us. And the Jews were the circumcision. And he says... They think that was great. They think that makes them a lot better. But it's only a sign. It's only a mark on the body of males in the Israelite community in covenant with God that was supposed to be a sign to them that they belonged to God and were to live for him and him alone. And so it didn't matter if they had the sign but didn't experience the reality of living for God. So he's saying it's, it's just made in the flesh. So see in verse 11, it's just made in the flesh by hands. It's not much different. It's not that important of a distinction. And so his point is just that they were making such a big deal out of something that really doesn't matter that much. They were making a superficial, like external thing, a matter of life and death or acceptance before God. And it is true, he says, you were Gentiles, you were uncircumcised, you were, in a sense, cut off from the presence of God. But, but that doesn't mean that the Jews were something great. They were sinners. They needed redemption. 
And so there are also tendencies in us today. We might be the people, like we look at those people outside the church, the liberals maybe we could call them. <laughs> or maybe it's the conservatives because we're liberal. And we, we think those people, you know, their political position or their gender or their, the color of their skin, we make external things about people what defines them. And then we judge them because of that. Maybe we're super uptight about our diet and food and looking healthy and trim and attractive. And so when we see other people eating food that we don't approve of, we judge them. We criticize them. We make external things a big deal. And we hold that we disdain them in our hearts. We treat them with contempt. And it creates hostility in our relationships with one another. And that's sin. That's part of our problem. When the fall, when, when, when men sinned, Adam and Eve sinned, the immediate result, what happens in Genesis 4 right after that? Cain killed his brother Abel. It brings hostility into the world. And Genesis 3.15 says that the reason, there's going to be one who comes one day. The seed of the woman is going to crush the, there's going to be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Hostility. And he's going to crush He's going to come crush the serpent and put an end to hostility and enmity forever and bring peace. And we'll get to that later. But the point is, do you see? Do you see your problem? Do you see how you treat people with contempt? You criticize them. You don't love them like you should. You speak evil of them. You slander. You gossip. We all do this when we know we shouldn't. And it's part of the fall. It's part of our sinful condition. So do you have broken relationships with your family, people at school? Do you judge people and disparage them for areas where they disagree with you that ultimately don't matter? Do you, do you smart people disdain those who are not as intelligent as you? Or do you athletic people make fun of or mock those who don't have the same physical capabilities as you? Or same body as you? Are you quick to forgive or do you brood over the offenses against you? Do your relationships with your family exhibit harmony and peace and love or selfishness, pride, and hostility? There are many things that cause hostility and divide us, but none of them really matter in God's eyes. Those little things that we make such a big deal out of. All of this is evidence of our great need for salvation for it exhibits the deep corruption of our hearts the deep corruption of our hearts, that we can make such small things, atomic bombs in our relationships. We need a king to come who will unify his people in peace and righteousness, killing all hostility by crushing it underneath his feet. That was the problem with the Gentiles. He tells them, you guys, you really were, you were the uncircumcised, which means you were cut off from the covenant promises. And we'll get into that in the next verse. But the Jews, they're not exempt. The people who judge others because they're not like you. They didn't grow up in the church. We're all sinners. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's our universal condition. So verse 11 is about hostility. Verse 12 is about exclusion. About the exclusion of the Gentiles in the flesh, from the community of God's people, from a covenant relationship with God. 
So I guess I should define what a Gentile is. In the Bible, Gentile is just anyone who's not a Jew. And a Jew is someone who God chose, a nation, to be in a relationship with him in what's called a covenant. And I'll just read verse 12 before I go any further. Remember that you were at that time, you Gentiles, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So the whole book of Ephesians, it's, Paul's trying to tell, the, he, who, who's he writing to? He says it, you Gentiles, verse 11. And he's trying to remind them of where they once were, but where they now are in Christ. And he's always alternating between you, the Gentiles, and we, the Paul and all those associated with him, the Jews. So you guys can go back to verse, verse 1, where he, he says who he's writing to. He says, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Notice, he knows they're Gentiles, but he calls them saints, which means you're holy people. Gentiles were dirty in the Jews' eyes. He calls them saints. You guys, in your own sins left to yourself, you would be dirty. But Paul says you're saints. You've been made holy. Um, if you go to verse, you look at verses 3 through 10, he's talking about all the blessings that we have. And he's talking about Jewish Christians. It's kind of crazy that he, he's talking that way, but he's talking about Jewish Christians. But then he says in verse 11, or verse um, 13, in him you also, who's he talking to? Gentiles. When you heard the word of truth, were sealed with the Holy Spirit. He always ultimates, he's saying all these blessings, they're not just for the Jews, they're for you also. And so it's such an amazing truth to them at that time. They didn't, like, we kind of think, oh, you know, who cares about Jews and Gentiles? But they were not used to this. This was a surprising truth, that the grace of God would extend to us, that we're dirty, that we're sinners. So he prays that God would help them to understand it. Chapter 2, 1 through 3, again, he says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You walked according to the prince of the power of the air, that you were following the course of this world. Then he says, verse 3, Among whom we all once lived. And Paul's talking about himself and all the Jews. He says, Every single person, Jew and Gentile, are all under the power of sin, all deserving condemnation. So you see how it's just this point that Paul keeps bringing up. And, we'll, and in verse four through, chapters 4 through 6, he gets a different emphasis. But right now, he's just trying to tell them, you guys, you're sinners, and the Jews are in the same condition, but all of you together can share in the blessings that come to us in Christ Jesus. All of you are saints. You're saints. You're holy ones in Christ Jesus. And so that's not surprising then when we get to verse 11 through 13, and Paul's really focused on telling them about what they were as Gentiles. And then in verse 13, we're going to see he tells them the new reality for them. And so you think, like, why does all this matter? I, I don't know a lot about Gentiles and Jews. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. How does it apply to us today? And to do that, to understand that, we've got to dig deep. We've got to understand what he was saying at that time. And an important thing to understand is the word covenant in the Bible. And this word... It, it's uh, this guy named Old Palmer Robertson. He says a covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. So a bond means it's not just like a loose relationship. We are, you're bound together with someone, which is what marriage is. It's a, it's a covenant. 
and it's secured by blood, which means that if you fail in the Bible, if you fail to meet your covenant obligations, it, either, it means death, blood. Blood has to be shed. But if you uphold them, it's, it's life. So it's just talking about there's a, it's life and death matters that you uphold this covenant. And sovereignly administered means that it's the person who's greater, like a king, coming to a person who's lower and saying, I'm going to give you all these benefits. And in response, you need to obey me. You need to submit to me. That's how covenants worked back in that time. And the Bible talks about our relationship with God in terms of covenants. Adam was in a covenant, Adam was in a covenant with God. He had to do good works and by that marry eternal life. So when he sinned, it brought, he was our representative and he brought condemnation to all of us. Because we were in Adam when he sinned, as Romans 5 says. After that, the whole world was fallen. God had given a promise. One day someone's going to come to redeem you. But sin just kept getting worse and worse and worse until the time of Noah, there was a flood. It wiped out all humanity. But then it says God made a covenant with Noah. And that covenant, God was saying, even though this world's so sinful, I'm going to preserve it until my Messiah will one day come. The one who's going to give you rest. Who's going to relieve you from the painful toil, from the burden of sin. I'm going to preserve the world until then. And it keeps going until you get to Abraham, Genesis 12. God says, I'm making a covenant with you. You're going to have this offspring in whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. Every, every nation. And God's relating to people in terms of covenants. And then finally, the Jews, when we think about the Jews, it's about the Mosaic covenant. Which, in this covenant, God promised them land. He promises them to be his people, his treasured possession. He gives them all these things like the temple, like the sacrifices that point forward to the Messiah and allow them to, in their current experience, to enjoy God's presence among them. And so that's what he's talking about here in verse 12. He's talking about how that was made, all the rest of the nations were left in their sin and misery, but God chose for the time being to make Israel the people through whom he'd advance his purposes Mm -hmm. to bring the Messiah one day. And so here he's talking about the benefits of being an Israelite that the Gentiles didn't have. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, which means you did not have the privileges of the Messiah who would come. And the, the Old Testament says the Messiah would come, he'd bring peace. He'd unify all people under one banner. He would restore righteousness and justice because he would be a wise king. This Messiah would be a prophet who would speak the word of God, who'd proclaim peace to all people, salvation. And he'd be a priest who finally gives access to the presence of God forever. The Messiah means the anointed one. The the word Christ, all over our Bibles, that actually means Messiah. It means that Jesus is a prophet, he's a priest, he's a king. And he's going to bring us salvation. Our salvation is only in him. So he's saying, but you guys didn't have the hope of a coming Messiah. The Jews said the Messiah is only for us. He's going to save us and he's going to condemn all of you guys. So that's the first thing about the Gentiles. They were separated from Christ. They were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Commonwealth just means citizenship. The privileges that belong to being a citizen of a kingdom. And he says, you were alienated from that. You were estranged from that. You had no access to those privileges. And you were strangers to the covenants of promise. Here it talks about covenants. The, the bond in blood sovereignly administered through which God gives us promises that one day he's going to bring eternal life through the 
through the Messiah, through Jesus Christ. And he says, you are alienated from all those. And what does that all mean? It's all basically just one thing. You don't have the privileges of Israel. And because of that, you were left in your misery, which means that you were having no hope and without God in the world. And in the Bible, it talks about the condition of everyone apart from Christ. They were, in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, he's talking about death. And he says, I'm telling you about Christ's return so that you won't grieve as those who have no hope. They're in the world. They're experiencing death, suffering, all those things I mentioned in the beginning, broken relationships, and they have no hope. The life they have now is only going to get worse. And they're without God. One of the greatest joys of a Christian is that even in the hardest times, the Lord is with me. He's there to help me. But he says, before you were saved, you were without God. You didn't have his presence. You didn't know his love, his salvation. So, you will one day die. Do you have hope? Do you have a hope for something beyond the grave or only fear? You can only accept trouble and hardship in this life mixed with a little bit of happiness and then misery and torment for the, for the rest of eternity. Do you have hope? Do you live like you have hope? Do you live like you're, you've got better things ahead and you're just passing through this world as a stranger, an exile, a sojourner, as the Bible says? Saying, this is not the, all that's got, I'm going to have. I've got better things. I've got God. I've got eternity. And I'll be with the Lord. He'll eternally satisfy me. I don't need things of this world. Do you have hope in which you rejoice even when you suffer? Do you have hope? And do you have God? Do you live like a practical atheist? Like every day, you don't really think about God. You don't really live like it makes any difference that there is a God. Or do you live in fellowship with God? That you come to him when you have trials and you say, God, I need your help. When you have joys, you come to him with thanksgiving. When you have an ordinary day, you pray that he would help you to be faithful. Do you live in a relationship with God? His point to them is that you Gentiles, before you were saved, you were without hope, without God in the world. You, had, you didn't know the joyful presence of God in this life, and you had no hope for the one to come. And that was our condition. And if we were separated from God, that implies that we were pursuing other things. He let, we were in our sin and misery, which means we were pursuing idols. Jeremiah 2.13 says that we've done this great evil. We've forsaken God, the fountain of living waters, and hewn for ourselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God can eternally satisfy us, but we take these things that can't satisfy. We weren't made for them. Remember what Augustine said? You have made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. But we forsook God. We went after earthly things. And in Jeremiah 2.22, he says the consequence of that sin is that you're impure, you're defiled, just like the Gentiles. You can't have access to God's presence. And he says, though you wash yourselves with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt remains before me. 
Because we are so defiled by our idolatry, he says, your sins have made a separation between you and God. And he says, we, even our righteous deeds are filthy rags. We're dirty. We need someone to cleanse us. Because no one who's unholy or impure can come into God's presence. No one who's not righteous can inherit the kingdom of God in heaven. So what did God do for sinners like us in our condition where we were before God saved us? What can God do for you if you're still in that condition without hope and without God? It says in verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What's salvation about? It's about those who are far away being brought near. It's about having access again to the presence of God. We had offended God. Like a husband or wife that had forsaken his, or a husband that had forsaken his wife and was faithless to her and went off and committed adultery and it brought this bitterness and a fractured relationship. We had forsaken God. We had been faithless to him. We had been treacherous. We betrayed him. How can we get back into a relationship with him? How can we enjoy fellowship with him again? He was the one who went after us. He was the one who went after us. What did he do? He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to shed his blood so that we could have access to his presence again. In the Bible, look at the book of Leviticus. It talks about how we're unclean. The only way we can have access to God again, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. It's only by blood shed that sins can be atoned for and we can have access again into the Holy of Holies. And his point here is that Jesus Christ, he shed his blood on the cross so that we who are guilty, who are sinful, who have betrayed God and therefore become defiled and impure. The only thing where we can be purified and have access to God's presence again is through the blood of Jesus Christ shed for us. And Jesus did. He willingly laid down his life for his sheep. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. You were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. It says in uh, 1 Peter 3, 18, I think, that Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. We were unrighteous. We deserve to suffer for sins. Jesus, not just out of the way. He said, I'll suffer in your place, though he didn't deserve it. Why? That he might bring us to God. You have sinned. We've kind of talked about your sins already. Broken relationship with one another. Broken relationship with God. You've forsaken him. But Christ suffered in your place. He died for you. He shed his blood so that you, who deserve to be exiled from God forever and sent to hell, we all deserve that. He sent his son to shed his blood, to take that wrath. On the cross he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me like they forsook you? And it was because he was suffering our place. He bore the wrath that we deserved. And now through him we have access again to heaven we have hope now we have the presence of God 
All the covenants in the Bible, they have all this one promise at the center. And it's this. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. They don't deserve it. They're sinners. They've done a thousand things to make me reject them. But they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will do everything necessary to save them. None of it can depend on them, so I'll take the full weight upon myself and upon my son, Jesus Christ, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Both now, when you believe in him, and for all eternity, you can have joy again. In his presence, there is fullness of joy, and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And he brings us back into that when we believe. So, we go to Psalm 16. It will help bring out some of these truths, what it means to have a relationship with God. This is Psalm of David when he was suffering, going through many trials. And so what is his joy? What is his hope in these times? He says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. I have no good apart from you. A good thing is just something that satisfies your soul in the Bible. It's like food, grain, wine, uh, marriage, you know, a fun game that you play, whatever. He says, I've got no good apart from you. You are the thing that satisfies my soul. As for the saints in the land, the people of God, the church, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. I love the saints. I love fellowship with the people of God. I love to go into the presence of God, like Psalm 42 says, and joyfully sing about God's glory. That's the joy that we have as saints. But verse 4 says, The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Those who forsake God and turn to another God, their sorrows are only going to multiply more and more and more. It's like um, exponents or where something just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and expanding. When you run after another God, your life is going to be more and more sorrow. Throughout this life, it's just going to keep multiplying on into eternity. So he says, I'm... Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Which just means I'm not going to worship those gods. That's, that's what you would do when you worship those false gods. He says, nope, I don't want those gods. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. What he's saying there is just, when they allot territory, like, okay, this is going to be, what you get? This will be your land, your section of land. And you know, it's just, maybe you get a really bad piece of land. Maybe you get a good one. Or like a piece of pie. Like, oh, I got the really tiny slice of pie that I didn't want. I wanted the big one. He's saying, I got the best slice of pie you can get. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Why? Because I got God. He's better than the millions of other gods people make in this world. I have God. They have fallen for me in pleasant places. I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. So in his sufferings, he is God counseling him, at his side, helping him. 
I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. This is his hope. He's suffering. He's going to die, but he says, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. I'm not going to die. Not going to die eternally. No, I'm going to be raised up to into your presence. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So being with God and having a hope, they kind of go together. Our hope is to be with God. And the fact that God is with us now is the reason that we can have hope for eternity. Because he'll help us. Later these verses are actually applied to Jesus Christ in Acts 2 and Acts 13 and a bunch of other places. Jesus went to the grave. He suffered. And he took refuge in his God. And he had confidence that his soul would not be abandoned to Sheol. But he'd be raised up to enjoy the presence of God forever. And we are all in Christ also brought near to God. Where there's fullness of joy. Where there are pleasures forevermore. No longer without hope. Without God in the world. So that's our portion. That's what we get. We get God. Forgiveness is not the end goal of salvation. It's just the means to the end. The purpose of salvation, the purpose of forgiveness is to get God. Like in the marriage, if they're enemies, if they're hostile to each other because one of them has been faithless, they seek forgiveness not because they, oh, I just want forgiveness. It's because they want to have fellowship back again. They want their relationship back again. And so we can come to God through Jesus Christ and he'll forgive us all our sins so that no matter how dirty we are, how many times we've betrayed him and broken his heart, like Ezekiel 6.9 says, he'll receive us back because Christ shed his blood for us to cleanse us from our sin. So Paul, he says, remember that. Remember where you were. Remember you without hope, without God in the world. Remember where you are now, that you've been brought near to Jesus Christ. You've got access to God again. John 14, Jesus says, I'm going away, and you're not going to be able to come where I am right now. And Tom says, where are you going that we can't come? And how can we get to you if we don't know where you're going? Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See what he defines salvation as? It's just coming to the Father. Coming to the Father now to receive salvation and then having access to him forever in heaven. And he says the only way to have that is through me. The way, the truth, and the life. So, we... We have a glorious salvation. We have a hope forever. Are you going through suffering, trials right now? Pain, a broken relationship, many broken relationships. One day that will be over. And even now, God's presence is with you to comfort you. In the night also, he'll instruct you, he'll counsel you. And then forever you'll be in his presence where there's fullness of joy and at his right hand where there are pleasures forevermore.
And the only way you get there is because Jesus lived, he died, he rose again for you. Do you want that? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. It's by his blood, his blood and righteousness alone that you can have access to him. There's so much beauty in what he has done for us. I'm just going to end with this hymn by a guy named John Pennock, who lived during the 18th century, right before the Revolutionary War in England, and he was there during all the revivals that were happening. And he wrote this hymn about salvation, about how Jesus is the way to heaven. It's based on John 14. He says, Jesus, my all to heaven is gone. He whom I fix my hopes upon, his track I see and I'll pursue, the narrow way to him I view, the way the holy prophets went, the road that leads from banishment, the king's highway of holiness I'll go, for all his paths are peace. This is the way I long have sought and mourned because I found it not. My grief a burden long had been because I was not saved from sin. The more I strove against its power, I felt its weight and guilt the more. Till late I heard my Savior say, Come hither, soul, I am the way. This is his response. Lo, glad I come, and thou, blessed Lamb, shall take me to thee as I am. Nothing but sin have I to give. Nothing but love shall I receive. Then shall I tell to sinners round what a dear Savior I have found. I'll point to thy redeeming blood and say, behold, the way to God. He says, I found the way back to God's presence. I found the way to be freed from the guilt of my sin. It's Jesus, his blood, the way to God. And so I'm going to tell to sinners round what a dear Savior I have found. And that's what we should do. You've got friends without hope, without God in the world. Tell them about what a dear Savior you have found. He's been so good to us.